Welcome to Kaleidoscope, a new podcast and a new twist on innovation. Through this podcast series, we explore collaboration as the main driver of innovation. I'm Alistair Cameron, co-founder of Starticus, and joining me to co-host is Krishma Kasurka of podcast Small Town Big Dreams. Kaleidoscope is a three-part Starticus podcast series in partnership with Elmarks, the innovation specialist and early-stage investor. Elmarks bridges the gap between corporates looking to innovate and startups looking to scale. Through its innovation labs, Elmarks helps both large organisations, for example BMW Group, British Airways and Lloyds of London, and young companies first imagine the future of their businesses and then move towards it. Since 2014, Elmark's collaborative innovation programmes have not only enabled more than 40 corporates to innovate, but also helped over 170 startups gain a foothold into a range of markets. Collaboration between startups and corporates can be a winning formula for both parties, but only if approached in the right way. And that's why we've made Kaleidoscope. We're here to share a different story, one about innovation as collaboration. Specifically, a story about startup corporate collaboration. Spoiler alert, it can end happily, if you do it right, of course. Part one, the change worth making. In part one, we chat to Daniel Saunders of Elmarks, Anthony Rose of Seed Legals, and Matt Ballantyne of Stamp London. Working across music, TV, and now legal services, Anthony is behind a number of transformative innovations, including BBC's iPlayer. Talking about what makes innovation projects succeed and what gets in the way of innovation, Anthony shares his experience of creating a startup within a large organisation and explains why it pays for founders to first understand what corporates are doing and then do the opposite. Daniel Saunders and Matt Ballantyne are similarly interested in what brings about innovation across a range of sectors. Making the case for collaboration, Daniel explains how it is as much about embedding entrepreneurship into a corporate as it is about embedding startup solutions. While drawing on his experience working with a wide range of corporates, Matt helps us understand what entrepreneurship and, broadly speaking, cultural change looks like in the context of a large organisation. I just want to start by you you doing a quick introduction of, of yourselves and obviously what your backgrounds are. Matt, if you want to go first. Uh, so I'm Matt Ballantyne. I have been working independently uh, under the brand Stamp for the last six years. And I work with clients across a huge range of sectors to be able to help them make sense of uh, innovation and how they need to gear and organize themselves to be able to uh, be able to bring new ideas into their organizations, new approaches to how they work and taking new products to market. Fantastic. Anthony? Hi, I used to head up uh, BBC iPlayer years ago, learned to, to create a startup within a large organization. After I left the BBC, I built a startup, sold it, built a startup, sold it, invested in a few, got tired of paying lawyers to do my legals, met my, my uh, business partner, and we created Seed Legals to change that. Excellent. And finally, Daniel as well. So yes, I'm Daniel. Um, I am a technologist turned investor turned agent of change, I guess best be described. So through our marks, uh, we've created the largest network of corporate accelerators in the UK um, and now created around 50 or so innovation labs um, across the world where the, the core is to embed entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism within large organizations at the same time as embedding pioneering technologies. Excellent. And agent of change sounds a little bit James Bond. So 
I'm looking for some Bond-esque answers from you there as well. So in, in terms of, uh, let's do the, the first question. So Matt, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but if you could try and, in your opinion, explain what is innovation, just for anyone that's listening to it for the first time. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very broad ranging topic. And I think innovation as a term is one of those things that's kind of uh, used and abused uh, across corporate organizations to mean a multitude of sins. For the work that I do, I try to think about the world in the context of problems and solutions and the knowability of those things. Uh, big corporate industrialized organizations are really optimized to be able to deal with a world where they know what the problems are and they know the solutions to those problems. And that gives them the ability to operate at scale, to be able to repeat, to be able to use um, increasing levels of uh, quality improvement to be able to refine things. And that probably, if you're sitting around looking at the things in the room where you're currently sitting, most of the objects are the, uh, the result of those kind of scaled industrial processes. But the challenge for organizations is that when they don't know what the solutions are, or even worse, where they don't even know uh, what the, the problems are either, they really struggle. You know, the, the management truism of I don't want problems, I want solutions, I think is a very good signifier of the kind of culture that exists within most large corporates. And so for me, innovation is about how do you put methods and processes and uh, approaches and mindset in place to be enable, enable organizations to be able to deal with the ambiguity and the unknown of emerging uh, solutions and also to be able to sense make about how emerging technologies might apply within their organizations. Um, you have incremental improvement to services that's the kind of tradition of industrialized business models. But for me, it's how are you able to be able to uh, come up with new ideas, test them through iteration and building things, and then take those experiments into increasingly scaled things until you can become industrialized. So, so Kodak, for example, gets waved around all the time. Obviously, you hear it being spoken at, or obviously when corporate innovation or innovation talks are being held on stage. Is Kodak an example of where they didn't well, innovate? Or it, wasn't so much they, just a... it wasn't so much they didn't innovate. It was that they were unable to take their innovations to market. Kodak were one of the inventors of digital photography. The problem was they were a film-based organization and so they were just unable to take those innovations from R&D out into becoming meaningful products and you see that again and again the the best examples of R&D in the traditional sense have usually been through benign monopoly um, I also worked at the BBC for many years and Kingswood Warren which was the R&D center for uh, the Beeb for many years invented and took to market Nikam Stereo uh, huge innovations around virtual reality in the early days for uh, video production color TV teletext uh, it was able to do that because it didn't have any competition with the outside market and the way that you know the television market was 50s 60s 70s and 80s it, that was able to be happening uh, AT&T and the Bell Labs in the 60s and 70s in the US before the Bell Corporation was broken up again were able to take things through once you're into a competitive market, though, the focus generally for big scale organizations is about doing what they're doing to bring revenue in. And so new innovation, whether it's what happened at Palo Alto with uh, the Xerox Corporation and its inability to take any of the great inventions there to market, whether it was Kodak, whether, it, you know, the list of organizations that could actually come up with ideas but couldn't actually take them through into 
meaningful products and services is long. And it's because that's not how you gear an organization to do things at scale. And I think if I just want to jump in here, the innovation, people always think about about these new technologies and, and, and invention, but innovation is not necessarily invention. It, it's not necessarily new technologies. I think what, um, following what Matt was saying, it's as key about mindset about than anything else. You might come up with new ideas, but if you don't have the right mindset in order to be able to deliver to, to, to integrate them, then those ideas will never come to fruition. And I think, as you mentioned, Kodak's that great example of they did come up with this idea, they did develop the digital camera, but they couldn't actually roll it out. And, and, and obviously leading on from that then, this is a great way for us to then have the conversation around the dynamics of innovation. So mindset would be one, would that be fair? So the, the bravery to take something to market. And I'm assuming then with, with Anthony, with BBC iPlayer, the argument here is that it was developed and you didn't have... Well, you would have obviously had the commercial elements to have to drive as well. So, Anthony, do you want to do you want to kind of explain that and maybe what what dynamics were at force there? Sure. So, I think taking a step back, uh, a nice uh, way I've heard it put is that uh, in a company, in a in a business, you might think of your business in two parts. One of them is startup, and the other one is business. And business is taking uh, an efficient or creating an efficient operation that takes a known entity and sells it and creates revenue from it. So you've built a particular product and now if you think about your team, it's all about the sales, the marketing, you know the cost of goods, you know the cost of customer acquisition, you know your margin, and it's all about selling more of it. And that's the art of the predictable. But you might then separately think about the startup part of your business. And in a true startup they only have the startup part they haven't yet built it and the startup part is all about taking risks and developing things um, that you don't know might work it's about figuring out if something is a good idea or a bad idea and large companies should recognize the two are different and they have different ways of working dif different risk profiles uh, the problem i think with large companies is that they are used to the uh, predictable and can't figure out the unpredictable. So for example, now going back to the BBC, um, we had annual budget planning sessions and I recall meeting with our sort of budget controller and they would say, well, how much are you uh, planning to spend this year on each of your various projects? Actually list your various projects. I went, well, that might be a bit difficult because you're asking me to plan 12 months ahead. Actually, you know, I, I need to be doing some experiments and seeing which of those work. And then if they work, I will continue and put more of my budget into that. And the ones that don't work, I'm just going to kill very quickly. And they looked at me like I was a bit strange. You can't run a business this way. Um, and then... Uh, Later on in the year, when we had a budget catch-up, they said, well, you know, you've shown me five projects and you've, uh, you know, three of these have failed. And I went, well, they haven't failed. I did some user testing on it and it turns out that nobody wanted these. So it cost me like a thousand pounds to kill it. Should I have spent a hundred million pounds developing it and only then killed it? And so everything about innovation uh, is about having many, many ideas and then putting them through a funnel that kills the ones that were not suitable to go to the next step, taking some smaller number to the next step, which might be creating some simple mock-ups to do user testing, to asking real people whether they want it or not. So the essence of a corporation often is that the uh, CEO will have an idea or the head of marketing 
operations, whatever, will have an idea. And then the minions will dutifully build it. And only after having spent thousands or millions on it, will they discover that anyone wanted it or not. And in fact, everything about startup world is about inverting that, is about having lots of ideas and having the team, the domain experts, it might be the developers, it might be your design people, running lots of experiments to quickly validate amongst real users. And to give an example, back in my iPlayer days, my competitor in a sense, ITV, uh, decided to do a paid download service. My suspicion is that the CEO or the management team decided that uh, iTunes had a paid download service that was making lots of money so that uh, ITV should have that as well. But, you know, would people actually go to the ITV site and pay to download Downton Abbey? I mean, if you want to pay, you'd probably just go to iTunes. Anyway, they, as far as I understand, they spent literally over a million pounds and over 18 months building it. They launched it. It lasted a few months before they pulled the plug on it because nobody was interested in buying on the ITV site. And instead to invert that and do it as a startup within the business rather than an ego trip, um, it would have been the case that you would have paid your design team to for £12.50, make a button saying buy, stick it on your website. And if people click the button, then you pop up a message saying, thank you for clicking this button. If enough people have clicked it, we'll go build this feature. And actually, companies need to think about experimenting that way. So you can take the huge number of ideas that are generated by your team. You can, in fact, inspire them to have ideas. You should remove the friction to easily experiment. One of the nice things I've heard is um, a measure of innovation capability within a company is how many people does it need take to say yes to green light something. And if the answer is 17, well, that's it, you're dead. And if the answer is zero, well, that's a wonderful place to work, but it's true anarchy. And maybe the answer needs to be two or three that you know some of your colleagues or uh, your, your superior needs to green light something to give it a small budget to take to the next step. Yeah, so creating that culture is super important. And I think within a big company, obviously, you're not going to change the direction of the complete company with such things. But creating a culture where the team, even at a small level, even at an internal level, you know, can we do a particular task in a more efficient way? And I think when you look at BBC R&D and you look at Xerox and you look at others, I think one of the challenges they have is that the main part of the company is so focused on being the business, the selling of an existing product, that they just can't fold that innovation as part of its DNA. And so they create an offshoot, an R&D labs, or sometimes called a RAD program, where some people are paid to sit in a different building and have ideas. And I'm not a big fan of that because you end up with the people doing the R&D being able to break all the rules, being able to have fun, but they're often then a big mismatch between we've had an idea and we bring it to market. And so there are many, many ideas, there are papers written, there are patents granted, everyone pats themselves on the back and they proceed to never commercialize that or they make standards, body papers and everyone feels good. 
but the company isn't actually doing anything. And at the BBC, I faced an R&D or a RAD team in this case, where the company created a small group separate to BBC R&D to try and develop things faster. But I quickly saw that they developed many things and none of them could ever make it to production. And so instead, could you leverage that spirit within the main team to allow your teammates to have an idea, quickly validate it, and create the least number of people that need to say yes to move that idea from a concept into a shipping product. There's, there's also an interesting paradox within a lot of corporate uh, scaled organizations that it's often a lot easier to be able to gain approval for a much larger amount of money with much higher risk associated with it than it is to spend a small amount of money with low risk associated with it. Proportionately, if it takes you five days to be able to get approval for £5,000 or 50 days to be able to get approval for £5 million, people will go for the £5 million, even though that likely is going to lead to a much greater loss. These kind of paradoxes, because organisations have got control mechanisms, often within finance processes, that mitigate supposedly against risky behaviour, can lead to some really bizarre outcomes where actually the risks that are taken are far greater. So, Daniel, is is that your experience, obviously, from, from working within Almax, that disruption it lends itself well to startups because the, the, the management structure is flat and decisions are made quick? Well, obviously, there's a very different structure between a large organization and a small organization, between a corporate and a startup. Um, and after, therefore, there's different ways of working, which can then mean a startup can develop things a lot quicker. They don't have to be so accountable to shareholders or to large to, to existing customers. So, yes, they can be a lot more agile in their development. Um, and I don't think anything that we do will ever change the fact that somebody who's working by themselves or with a couple of other people will work faster than an organization with hundreds of people. Um, however, I just want to pick up on what, um, what what Anthony was saying earlier and how how do you actually create that culture of innovation, not just amongst a certain group, but across the organization? Um, you can't just have a, an isolated group um, in their R&D, R&D center doing innovation. That doesn't work. I mean, in, innovation cannot exist in isolation. So how do you create that culture of, of innovation across an organization, that, that culture of, of, of experimentation, of collaboration um, and that's not a simple answer and just bringing a startup in to work with a corporate won't create that environment um, so that there has to be a process and there has to be a process that works for both the startup um, and the corporate. Um, where does the need for improvement or innovation come from in your opinion and what are some of the outside forces that impact that? Well the need for innovation is is transparent across sectors, across countries, across companies. Um, every company must be moving forward. Um, if you, as we spoke about earlier, but the fact that Kodak was unable to move forward meant it ended up no longer continuing to exist. So, I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that there is a need for innovation and a need for change. Well, how 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 does how does a obviously from a corporate perspective then how does a corporate begin that cultural change to become more innovative? If you've got, like, say, a company of 500 staff, where do you start? So I think the simple answer to that, it has to happen at all levels of the organisation. You can't say that the innovation strategy is set by 
the C-suite. You can't say the innovation strategy is set by an innovation team. And you can't say the innovation strategy is set by people on the top floor. Um, you have to be where every person in that organization is brought into it and plays a part in it. So when actually assessing the challenges of organization and the future of organization, it's important that everyone is listened to. Um, everyone is actually play and plays a part of it. So when it comes time to seeing where the future risks of a company are is, it's often seen by the people engaging on a day-to-day -day level. So we're talking, as I say, whether it is people who are delivery drivers, they're seeing what their challenges are whilst out on the field. Same thing people on a shop floor, a retailer, same people for selling cars in a car showroom. Those are the people who can see the challenges. Those are the people who actually should influence the, the innovation strategy organization. But then it also happens from the top down. So it's about getting everyone involved in that conversation. And then when it comes to actually testing, piloting, and integrating the startup technologies, it can't be just done in a skunk works or on an on a external innovation lab. It has to be in a way that those startups, those technologies, those or internal ideas are tested and used by the people who actually be benefiting from it, whether that is a C-suite or actually people who are on a, on, again, on, on a shop for out on the road. I think, sorry, if I can hop in, I think the, uh, that's exactly it, which is the people driving new ideas are likely the people using the products. And they may be your internal team. And in fact, you should encourage your internal team to do it. I mean, Microsoft realized they were in, prob in trouble with their search product when they discovered that uh, people on the bus to the Microsoft office in the morning were running Google search. Um, but I think a perfect uh, example that we can all relate to is our bank app. Now, bank apps are almost certainly complete rubbish. And why are they so indescribably bad? To the point that you can have new entrants, billion dollar companies like Monzo, Revolut start up. And they're starting up basically because Barclays, whatever your bank is, have failed to let their team develop a few basic bits of functionality for their app, leaving the field open for a huge competitor that now is going to be very difficult to stop. So when you run your Barclays app or other, and it shows you the uh, transaction in eight characters or less, or will only let you go back the last 100 days, or some complete nonsense thing. How did they ever create a culture where the developers of that app, who probably have a bank account with that company, could not take the same thoughts that you have when you use the app and you are frustrated and just improve it? And if you create a startup, as we do at Seed Legals, everyone in the business listens to the customers on a daily basis. We have a web chat where people talk to us. Everyone in the team, including the developers, sees it. So the CTO, if somebody says, I don't know how to do X or this button doesn't work, I don't need 17 levels of meetings. In fact, I know that in 15 minutes time, my CTO is very likely to have posted a message saying, ah, found the problem, we'll be fixed tomorrow. So in that you know, hypothetically Barclays um, web app or, or, you know, phone app that they're creating for their banking process. I don't think we need to think about uh, innovation that existentially. It's simply creating a culture, I mean, in one manifestation of it, saying, team, go out and listen to your users. Team, have ideas. All these cool things that you would love the app to do, even things that your competitors are doing that two years in you're still not doing, 
how could that possibly be the case? What kind of broken culture do you have? So the reasons that a company needs to do these things are firstly, you're going to get eaten by your competitors if you don't. Secondly, your team are going to leave and go elsewhere because people love an environment when they can be creative and when their own ideas can be turned into reality. And no doubt at the banking company, they have a to-do list in their team of 450 things they would like to do in their app, and they're precisely doing none of them. The next app will have a new set of color scheme because the marketing people ask that, but will have zero new features. And how do you change that? Andy, one thing I just want to jump on there, and I think as a key point, I think a great example of a bank app, um, the, the t internal teams may be looking at their competitors and thinking what other people are doing. They may be looking at the, the, the Monzos and getting inspiration from them. But I think what people are often missing is they're not actually listening to the customer. And the customer doesn't go to the bank app and think, oh, I prefer this bank app to something else. They'll be thinking, why isn't my bank app more like the Netflix app? Why is it more not more, more like the Facebook? The, the, the apps that they're used to using, the experiences they're using in other worlds, why is that not the same in the banking sector or any other more traditional sector? So I think that's a key point that when internal teams are looking at innovation, they can't just think internally and think about what their competitors are doing. They must be seeing what is the experience that the customer is actually looking for. I think that's crucial that the um, if you're waiting for the Monzo to come and into existence to be able to become your competitor before you take action, it's too late. Um, but there is a, a and something I actually run with quite a lot of my clients is to be able to get them to think about how our experience as digital consumers has changed our expectations. So if I can get detailed tracking every step of the way down to the name of the driver when I order a £5 package from Amazon, then why can't I have similar levels of digital transparency when, for example, I'm dealing with a corporate law firm? And the reason for that is because corporate law firms, Anthony, I'm sure you're well aware of this, uh, they, they see things like the billing experience as a mere support cost that needs to be managed down. And so the experience is dreadful. For the client, however, if I can't have visibility of what my costs are likely to be, then I've got a fundamental issue with my service provider. And it's that mentality of thinking about what we now have it as expectation as a digital consumer about transparency, around the visibility of data, about how core business processes should be transparent to me as the customer. And that applies to every organization, whether they're a pure play digital organization or whether they're the most traditional business in the world. There is just this change of expectation. You need to use that as the kind of the, the clarion call for people to be able to understand the meaning and purpose behind the, uh, the need for innovation in an organization and to give urgency to that sense of innovation as well. And I think for me, core around all of this is what does an organization do and particularly what does an organization's leadership do to be able to create that clear, compelling message about why this needs to happen within our organization. Because if that isn't in, in existence, all of the rest becomes so hard. So Matt, I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to ask you, when you and Daniel mentioned it earlier, when he said, obviously, everyone within the organisation needs to be a part of that process. So, my I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say that, like uh, the person out on the field um, that uses, or you know, say it's, they're using a piece, a product that obviously, um, what would 
what would be the benefit of that person to innovate to the extent where perhaps they lose their jobs? Is there, is there that barrier when you're trying to innovate within a business that some of the employees are worried about what that innovation will mean for them? I think that's been the long tradition of technology from the spinning journey onwards. I don't see that as anything new. Um, and, you know, inevitably over time, uh, particularly through automation, what we see is that you get waves of technology throughout the entire history of the industrialized uh, world. You get waves of technology that make previous skills obsolete and generate new sets of skills. Now, there's a there's a broader kind of economic political challenge about whether the latest wave of technology is creating the new jobs in the way that previous waves of industrialization did or not. It's probably not for this discussion. But will some people be threatened by change because it could actually have a very personal impact on them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that doesn't mean that you just therefore ignore it. The organizations that ignore it, will everybody will be out of a job. Uh, obviously, this is. Um, I'll speak about the legal sector. Just because I've got Anthony in the room, and he, he obviously knows this area a lot more than I, than I do or anyone else does. But if you just take the legal sector for a second, um, there's automation coming to that world, um, and some of it is perhaps through the likes of C legals. Um, but if you take a, a lawyer who spends how much money and how much time training to be a lawyer, um, they don't see that their exciting future is doing rudimentary tasks of reading through a contract and copying and pasting and doing bits and pieces which could be automated. Actually, they have a lot of skills as a lawyer, which is what they've been trained for, what they want to use. So actually, when you do have technologies being developed that can augment the existing workforce, it'll ena enable them to use the skills that, they, that, that are actually a lot more useful than perhaps what they're spending their time doing at the moment. And as um, Matt said earlier about, you know, bills and, and that really boring task of having to bill a client and to add up your 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 your, your hours and all that that that, that time-consuming um, uninspiring work that can be automated is actually a benefit so yes it will change the way workforces work um, but not necessarily will it replace people there's also I think notions of what is valid work particularly knowledge-based organizations I was um, met up with somebody, a lady called Sharon O'Day, who's a specialist in uh, collaboration and, and, and intranet technologies, who I've had conversations for years on Twitter, and we actually met up in person yesterday for a coffee and a chat. And we spoke for about an hour and a half. And one of the things we were talking about is how if we were both in traditional organizations, in traditional jobs, there would be no deliverable, measurable output from that hour and a half of fascinating and educational conversation because we hadn't produced a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint deck or some other you know idiotic piece of nonsense which is how people within organizations at scale are measured and so it actually hits then into a more fundamental set of things which is there's a lot of work at the moment in particularly knowledge-based organizations that is of low value but is the way in which people's productivity is assessed I heard this fantastic quote a few years ago, which is everybody, if everybody learned how to use Excel macros properly, about half the world would be unemployed. I think realistically, um, very little um, of 
you know, new ideas in a company will relate to putting any of their people out of work. If you're a, a worker in an Amazon warehouse, that may be the case. But for most people, when you look around you at your daily frustrations, uh, what can you do to make it more efficient? What can you do to improve the product offering to your customers? Um, at Seed Legals, what I like to do is I like to think about every problem in the way that a law firm would, and then do completely the opposite. When I started the business, um, my perception was that people were looking to you know, solve a legal problem. And it turns out that it's all about a range of other things. It's about the way people converse with us. So instead of with a law firm, you book a call for next week. With us, there's a web chat system. The median response time from our team is 1 minute 48 seconds. Our team, of course, that takes support costs for us, but we offer unlimited support, all included. So my goal is to increase efficiency. So every time people ask us a question, by the third time people ask the same question, we write an article for it. So the team are encouraged to, in a sense, put themselves out of business, but it's a nice thing. We all delight in it. In fact, we all love to find something that we're doing manually and essentially automate it, not because the team half the team will then be redundant, but no, because we'll actually be building the machine in a sense to help us all operate more efficiently to the point that, for example, we now find that most investments on seed legals are not closed during business hours, which is when you would expect it, but closed at 10 or 11 o'clock at night because we've discovered that people aren't actually founders have a busy day. And what they are looking to do is find some time in the evening or weekends to do their investments. In fact, exactly the time when my competitors' law firms are sleeping, our platform being always on, people are using it. And so I totally delight in, in fact, creating a, t a culture where the first thing we do is we think about how we might do it the opposite way to the way it's been done. Not to create a better thing, but do completely the opposite. And then... Um, of course, not get ahead of ourselves. We're still creating an answer to today's problem. But we also know that one day we're going to wake up and figure someone else has out-disrupted us, that they're going to say people don't need a funding round at all. We're going to do it all on blockchain. And so I think one of the other interesting things is to figure out when are the right number of forward-looking steps to take versus when you're taking some steps too far. And we know that totally zero people coming our way have the word blockchain in the things that they're asking us. So having anything with the word blockchain or secondary market or something like that in it, at this point, doesn't seem like a useful thing to focus on. So if we can focus on giving people the solution that they're asking for, and if you can take your team and maybe think about it in two phases, phase one, how can we do what we're doing more efficiently? How can we be awesome to our customers? Have a look at all the things that customers are asking, all the things we're doing internally that we don't like. Maybe the meetings that we have, we, everyone hates meetings. How can we not do those meetings? So create the culture where people think and are encouraged to think about even small things to do differently. We're making doing differently is a success and not a you know, disparaging of anyone else. And then the mechanism to easily take that idea and turn it into something. And I think one more thing, which is that often when I see large corporates, they go, yes, we've created an innovation team. Look, let me show you our innovation room. We've got some cushions and we've got orange lighting and we've got the latest gadgets you can sit and play with. And this is, in my view, 
the wrong thing to do. All it does is encourage people to go, hmm, other companies are making a much better job of this because you're showing me all sorts of cool things that we don't have in our organization. And it's a museum. You can go in and you can look about all the things that we don't do. And instead, how can you create some small set of initiatives that every Friday someone in the team gets called out and gets a voucher for 50 pounds for something for the single thing they did best that they had an idea and took it to some next step, which might be a mock-up that they have five of their colleagues test. You may have a budget of 500 pounds or a thousand pounds for people to get together to have an idea and again, create a mock-up on the phone that you can use an app that people think is a good improvement for your product. So lots of little things and then some small set of tests that take a smaller number of those to the next step would be a great way to start creating this culture within a business. So Anthony, with Seed Legals, you've been disrupting in a pretty established traditional space at the very start of the journey. And you've been talking about how it will continue disrupting with things like blockchain as well down the line. Um, but how quick in terms of the profession that you are disrupting, such as the legal profession, how, how quick have they been to embrace or distance themselves from what you're doing? Have they been keen to come on board or have they said that this is strongly a competitor that we're competing against? It's a fascinating question. And I think, as has been said minutes ago, um, lawyers are smart people. They've, in a sense, embraced technology for ages from the from the quill to the pen to the typewriter to Microsoft Word. Um, and so they are now embracing uh, AI systems that will parse emails when, you know, Hillary Clinton's 600,000 emails were read in two days by the FBI. Obviously, there weren't humans reading it. It was an AI system. So, but most legal tech is um, used by law firms to increase their efficiency. And it turns out lawyers are somewhat schizophrenic, which is personally, they love the higher level intellectual part of the things they're doing. And they really dislike the admin things, the rote work. But as a company, their billing systems and the way they charge by the hour don't encourage them to actually completely change what they're doing. As a consumer, nobody's actually looking for uh, legals. You're, it sounds trite, but you're looking for a solution to a problem. So if I can think about the opposite way a law firm would do it. It's about um, a branded proposition in a way that a law firm can't. You can get a seed fast agreement or an instant investment. I can create a platform where you can do it. So I delight in thinking about maybe what your competitors, if you think about it as a competitor, are able to do, and then doing something that is hard for them to do. But actually, that's only a very small part. That's just a fun side thing. 95% of what you do is just think about taking a step back. What might people be looking to do that is not currently satisfied by the market? What could I do that's totally awesome? And how is the least amount of time and effort to deliver that. There's, there's a thing in the legal sector specifically as well, though, which is fundamental about the way in which most law firms' core business model operates, which actually mitigates against them doing anything serious when it comes to innovation, and that's the partnership model. Um, the way in which law firms work, you work for 10, 15, 20 years to build up to become a partner. So you basically invest in your own personal future to then become a part owner of the business, at which point 
you're cashing out. And that stops them investing beyond the year. And it's a really, really deep systemic problem. And this is, I think, the other part around uh, innovation agendas for large organizations or established organizations. It's not just about the technology. It's not just about the app. It is fundamentally root and branch about how your business operates and being able to understand the systemic challenges that exist within your organization that prevent you being able to do things differently. Law firms, as long as they remain partnerships, are going to get cut away left, right and center by new entrants to markets who have a fundamentally different ownership structure. And they can't do anything to be able to get themselves out of that problem, which is uh, and you, you'll see similar sorts of challenges in different sectors. But it's not just about the technology part. It's it's very much more about how does your business operate from a business model perspective and what might you be able to do to be able to free up how you operate. Um, I think for me, then, you then start to look at how uh, alternative models for innovation within large corporates, large organizations, and actually a perfectly valid way to innovate is to acquire. And rather than having all the messy business of trying to be able to come up with ideas and take them to market and test them, which has got huge risk associated with it, because remember, most startups fail, uh, what you do is you pay top dollar to be able to buy the thing once it's already been established. And we kind of think that big tech companies are these hotbeds of innovation. But there are some numbers recently. Five years ago, the combined R&D spend of Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Google, Amazon was less than what Facebook paid to acquire WhatsApp. And that's, I think, a really interesting way to... Once a big technology company gets to being a big technology company even they really struggle with doing stuff in-house. And it's actually a lot less risky to be able to do it through acquisition. And then in terms of that, you're talking about maybe acquiring, is that also to do with perhaps diversity of thought and ways of thinking? So perhaps in an organization, there's a set or structured way of thinking. And by getting somebody else that has innovated in a slightly different area or innovated in the same area in a different way, that's perhaps bringing in that diversity of thought? It, it can be. Um a personal theory around how innovation operates and the collaboration that's required for innovation is that it can be thought of as being able to harness diversity because to be able to innovate effectively, you need to bring people together from different professional backgrounds, from different organizations, from different stakeholder perspectives and get them working together in ways that enables them to be able to both come up with ideas and then also reiterate those ideas to be able to take them through into tangible things. Um, uh, diversity as a corporate agenda item tends to be focused on the ethics of making sure that your workforce is balanced across ethnicity, gender, and so on. And that's perfectly valid and absolutely right. But I think uh, we miss a trick if we don't think about actually the challenges of managing diverse teams are real, because if people come from different backgrounds, it's harder to manage because there's less common language. And that's as much from different professional backgrounds as anything else. Uh, what often happens when companies are acquired is actually it's not the people that are being acquired, it's the product or the customer or the market share or whatever else. And quite quickly, the people who've been brought in disperse out. They've got their, you know, sit around for a while clause until they can eventually escape. They go off and do something else. And maybe there's a product left that's valuable at the end, maybe not. Um, but I don't think many times people are really thinking about it as this opportunity to be able to acquire more diverse thinking into the organization. But just, with, just following up on this, um, whether acquisition or 
developing your own ideas or whether you're bringing in startups, scouting for startups. There's many different forms of bringing new ideas into an organization and developing an innovation culture. Um, and there's no silver bullet. And you should be looking at all these different areas and you should be focusing on one or two of these different solutions depending on where your organization is as a company. Um, so I mean, part of the way we work is before we even start engaging with it, with one of our partners and running a lab or running an entrepreneurship program or running our, an ideation program, is we first need to do a health check on that organization, an innovation health check. And only once you've actually gone through an organization and seen where it stands, only then can you decide whether that the actual best way to, to move forward the innovation culture is to bring startups in, is to develop an in, the internal systems, is to go and acquire. Because just like when you a doctor diagnoses, you can't just start you know, distributing pills or putting in injections. You need to be seeing what you, where, you, where you stand currently, and only then can you move forward. So you thought you were uh, running an innovation workshop, but actually you're a psychologist saying, lie down on the couch, tell me about your problems. Uh, let's look deeper to see the underlying cause of the problems and uh, acquiring a company or setting up an innovation lab or something may be a, uh, a solution that you think is the case, but perhaps you need to look deeper within to find the underlying cause. Um, so now obviously in terms of obviously with with regards to innovation, uh, Daniel, what you're saying is you need to be able to work out at what stage that business is at in terms of their innovative thought before they can even go on the journey. Is that right? Absolutely. And then even you know once you're on that journey, there has to be a process as well, which is defined and is has very clear milestones, expectations, stage by stage, which will match the expectations of both if taking a startup innovation lab, both the startup and with the corporate. Um, we, we spoke about earlier about that that that, that different way of thinking and that um, that clash of mindset. You can't create a clash. You you can't create a a a, a bad environment. You need to create perhaps a melting pot and where the actual people ways can we can work together. And so when you are assessing a company and the way it should go on its innovation journey during the journey itself, you're assessing it stage by stage. And the way that, um, for example, the startup innovation lab would work is that you'll look at startups continuously um, and continuously assess them until you've actually triaged down to the right startups, the right mindset, the right entrepreneurs, the right solutions that you can end up working with the long term, which can transform your business. So it, it's not so much of a, a free-for-all experimentation. It has to be a very clear process. Again, if we're going to use it, the doctor analogy, you don't just throw drugs at someone. You don't just say, here, take some pills and hope for the best. It's okay. You're going to take pills for a certain amount of time. You need to take it through a course. You need to actually embed and integrate it in a properly defined method. So I'm going to quickly ask you then, leading on from that, with regards to the startups that are selected for the programs, it's as much if they're the right startups, the right founders, the right diversity of thought for that corporate as it is the technology that they could embed. Is that fair? Absolutely. Um, it, and and whether a startup might be brilliant for one organization and absolutely awful for the other, whether it's from a technological perspective or or just a mentality perspective. And, and everyone has to be looked at on a, on a case by case. And you, you could have, you know, two guys with an idea which would work really well in one organization and really badly in another. And you can have a, a larger company, well, larger, you know, 20, 30 um, person startup, which could work really well in one place and really bad in the other. And everyone must be judged on their own merits and in that, in that environment. So yes, it, it is as much about the technology 
and I'd perhaps say it is only a, a part of the um, of the actual full full mix as a technology. It is about the, the team. It is about the culture that they can then um, embed within each other. And on the uh, the host company side, as much as the startup side, you need the right people on the the corporate side for that to be able to work. And you need people who are able to be able to cope with ambiguity and are able to be able to have a bit of humility about them because they need to be able to understand that they won't necessarily know. You need people who can embrace the fact that they will probably feel like imposters because they're dealing with situations that they've never been in before. Uh, you need people who are able to be happy being childlike because often this is also about being able to be able to experiment and to play, not without any direction, but still a lot of things that fall into these categories are not the day-to-day of corporate life. I just want to jump on this very quickly. Um, and, and one word which Matt used beautifully was humility. Um, that is so crucial to any sort of engagement, any sort of relationship, being marriage counselling. It, it, it really is so um, the, the, the utmost of, of, of importance because you'll have potentially some startups who think, right, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do knock it, you know, um, roll over everyone else. Um, you're not going to create a good environment, a good relationship with that sort of mindset. Similarly, a large organization thinks, you know, they are the, the incumbent, the rulers. You know, who are these young upstarts trying to challenge me? The only way any sort of cultural innovation can exist, whether it's through internal innovation or external innovation, it's through being open and being happy to hear and to to having your own opinions challenged, your own way of working challenged, that goes as much for the corporate as it does for the startup. And do you think corporates are starting to change in terms of becoming more agile rather than than being stuck in maybe a more traditional structure or way of working? Do you think that is changing? I certainly think, obviously, in the last few years, it's become um, recognised the importance of working in a different way. Um, But you need to look perhaps more about why they're doing it. Um, And just by saying that we have a scrum and an agile methodology, and and as we were saying earlier, having beanbags and cushions doesn't necessarily make you um, open and and have that cultural innovation. So if it's being done in a true manner, um, then yes, it works. And, and, And it is happening more and more. But we can't escape the fact that if it's purely being done purely internally, you are only ever going to think internally and you must be opening yourselves up um, to other ways of thinking. And, and the, I, what I find often is that the, the, the thing that people are most scared of is having the customer in the room. Uh, that terrifies people. And it terrifies them because they're used to being expert. They're used to thinking that they know best for their customers. They're used to, quite frankly, giving the customer product or service and then, you know, user feedback afterwards, but you get what you're given. Um, Once they actually start to be able to engage with people, it changes their mind pretty quickly. But the getting over that leap of what we're going to have customers in the room is actually quite a big challenge. And I think that's exactly it, sorry, which is to create a customer-driven culture where ideas uh, are coming in large part from the customer. Obviously, customers will tell you current pain points. They won't necessarily think about new things in the future. So simply relying on that is not uh, the cure for all things. But if everyone 
uh, in the company can think about their customer and talk to customers. And often in a company, your customers might be internal. If you're the HR department, your customers are the people in the company, or if you're internal accounts or the IT department, you know, uh, instead of simply seeing an endless number of people that you're servicing, you might think, how can I create a baby startup within this organization? If I treat my uh, small team as a startup within a company, how might I do things differently? Maybe I should read the Lean Startup book and, and so on to see um, how we do things. Otherwise, you'll get things dreadfully wrong. I know, for example, uh, a bank that is uh, leading and forcing its internal team to use an appalling new database system that doesn't correspond at all to the features that its users want internally. So this is not even about external innovation and competitors. Somehow their IT department or whatever has decided what its internal users want. It looks terrible. It doesn't have basic things that they need. But they should be going out and talking to them all and rapidly going back to their office and going, what's the fastest way to pick the top three things that users hate about our product today? And what three things can we put in to make it awesome, ranging from a feature that they want to a little emoji that says, thanks for doing that to something um, and running it like its own little business, even if it is internal, because the reality for many people listening to this podcast, um, their customers, in a sense, are internal to the company, but that actually doesn't change anything at all. So I'm getting a sense here, guys, of co-creation. So co-creation, um, startups with the corporates, that co-creation has to happen. Co-creation with your customers, they need to be part of the creation of that solution. Um, is that a, a good observation or one that's a little bit too general? I think it's about an ongoing relationship. So co-creation, absolutely. But that implies that we come up with the idea with them and then we leave them alone. And I think it's about how do you embed the networks across organization, across suppliers, partners, customers, and actually foster that sort of spirit of collaboration more freely. The thing is that organizations these days are incredibly matrixed and we have... Um, a, very complex sets of interrelationships already. It's just that we tend to still think of them as the people inside and the people outside. The boundaries of where a team within an organization sits is often now it spans across organizational boundaries, geographic boundaries, professional boundaries, but we haven't really caught up in our thinking about how organizations operate. You know, there's a couple of hundred centuries, or sorry, a couple of hundred years, a couple of centuries of um, you know, industrialized organizational culture, it's not going to change overnight, but we are definitely seeing how people are starting to understand that we might need different approaches quite fundamentally to enable us to be able to serve the needs of the customers that we're trying to provide services for. I think we could talk about that this all day. So I'm going to leave my last thoughts with, with Anthony, if that's okay. Oh, thank you. Um, I think we may be in a strange situation with corporates where uh, the people within the company realize the need to change. They see um, consumer apps that they use. They see things that look fantastic, that are brightly colored, that are friendly. Um, and they are frustrated that their own company doesn't do that. But they lack 
the means to change the culture. So there's a strange relationship where a company both realizes what it's doing isn't right, but is yet unable to change that. And perhaps one of the reasons is that companies think that only big things are worth doing. You know, if it's not a new billion dollar or $10 million revenue source, it's not even worth starting. But actually, to create that culture where your team who do talk to users, whether they be internal or external, are able with the fewest number of decision makers and with modest budgets and nice uh, reward for success, being anything from a team stand up to a, you know some bonus or something, or even just the feeling that you've gotten something done. I think we read about the Tesla employees who um, are encouraged on a daily basis to come up with ideas to make production more efficient. By all accounts, they've got some way to go. But how we take the company and the people within it who realize what they're doing isn't right, isn't optimal. They realize that other people are doing better, but yet unable to change. And the things to uh, get past that are probably not a set of big things from the top, but a number of little things that people individually can do to allow their teammates to do things internally without asking permission to make some changes, to try some things, to do some testing, so that instead of going to your superior and saying, I've had an idea, can we green light this? To say, look, I've had an idea, I've uh, asked one of the designers in my team to make a mock-up. I've actually run it by five users of our product, um, and they think it's a fab idea, and this has actually been tested. Can we now take that to the next level. And that may not even be external users. It may be people internally who use your accounting software or you know, your printer service or whatever it might be to use data to inform decisions rather than have executives drive decisions. So to summarize, take small steps and lots of small steps and then hopefully the, the giant leaps of innovation will hopefully follow. I think that's definitely one approach, and that helps you do um, near-term things that will have customers love your product and avoid competitors creating entire new businesses based on your failure to create a better product. Separately, of course, you still need people thinking five or 10 years ahead, and that may uh, there may be nothing other than uh, some brave, new big bets that you may or may not take internally, you may need to acquire, but I think it's the yin and the yang between the both of them that leads to a vibrant ongoing business. This has been Ask the Cameron with Karishma Kasurka talking all things corporate innovation. Thanks to this episode's guests, production care of Graham Watson and to L Marks, our partners for this series.